Dive into an ocean of possibilities with the DKM program of the American Council of the Blind. Get connected and build a strong leadership foundation. Apply to become a 2024 recipient of the Derwood K. McDaniel First Timers Award. Get curious, explore, become engaged, and focus on making impactful contributions. Apply to become a 2024 ACB J.P. Morgan Chase Leadership Fellow. If selected, you'll be sponsored to attend the ACB Conference and Convention and learn how to navigate the waves of leadership from mentors and leaders of ACB. Don't delay. Apply today. For more information and to complete the application, visit www.acb.org slash DKM. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. Boy, am I impressed with that DKM thing. He could sell me a boat. <laughs> there you go. It was very good. That's uh, that's very good. Just so everybody knows, the, the DKM crowd will be with us next week, so... Do tune in to be wowed some more next week by some of the stuff that they're doing. Um, I, I think I think that it's not only um, the those two possibilities for the convention, but uh, the, the the DKM group is is working on a bunch of other things which we will hear about next week. So do tune in. So all of our regulars are back this week. I'm overjoyed. Hello, Mr. Brian. Hi there. How's it going? It is going well, thank you, sir. I and checked out Ms. the cost of going to Jacksonville for the convention from Boston. Not bad. Yeah. Two fifty round trip. That is not bad. That's also the cost of going to Boston from Jacksonville. So I'll have to think <laughs> about that. There you go. Miss <laughs> Marianne, how are you? I am well. It's good to be back, Paul. It is. Good to have you back. And Thank Mr. You. Rick, you're recovering from sagebrush? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, it was interesting being in Vegas the day after the Super Bowl. <laughs> but That uh, must have been intriguing. Yeah, it's good to be back. Well, that is that is excellent. And Mr. Larry, how are you, sir? I am well, Paul. Thank you for asking. Everything is good you, and wet here, well, but good. You are more than one. This is a good thing. So... Tonight we have um, the pleasure of having some members of uh, the Employment Committee with us. They have been guests for us um, before, and our intent tonight is to do two things, uh, one of which I'm really looking forward to because I know nothing about it or not very much about it, uh, and that is to hear about a survey that the Employment Committee has conducted and I'm going to be very interested in some of the results of, of of that survey, and to have to to get a better idea of how it how it works. And uh, Miss Sanoi, I think, is going to help us through that exercise. Um, how are you, Miss Sanoi? I am wonderful, Paul. Thanks. I'm excited That's to share this with you. Uh, I'm excited to get it shared. Um, and also from the Employment Committee, we have. Uh, Peter, how are you, sir? I'm fine, Paul. Thanks for inviting us. Excellent. And we have Mr. Babcock. Hey, sir. 
Hey, Paul, it's a pleasure being here. Yeah, excellent. So they're going to start us off, but they're also going to be helping us react to um, what for me is a very exciting uh, project that that we will take up after the survey and after we talk about other things that come up with regard to the employment committee. And that is a document um, that is described as phase two of the big data project. Um, many of you may remember that last year in, uh, oh, late last year or the middle of last year, a document was released um, by uh, the Vision Serve Alliance. And that document um, talked about the, the characteristics of visually impaired folks who were seniors. <clears throat> Phase two is another document which covers blind people aged 18 to 64. And that document um, has just been released. Um, we actually we actually have data from uh, the country. We, we also have data from Florida because Florida actually became one of the purchasers or sponsors yeah. of the data collection. And so that's pretty exciting. Uh, I'm very glad that it happened. Very glad that we'll have a chance to probably certainly be the first consumer organization nationally to take a look at it and maybe even the first um, national organization to have a crack at, at taking a peek at this data. Um, I, I sent it to members of the employment committee so that they would have an opportunity to review some of it. Um, and I think that they picked out some of the same things that I did, um, which which make this this survey kind of interesting. There are um, there are a number of uh, findings uh, in this survey which were surprising to many of us. So stay tuned, and you'll hear some more about those things. For the moment, though, I think that we that we get to hear some from Miss Melanie Snowy who's going to tell us something about the employment committee survey what the results are and and then uh, maybe she can tell us what it means and if she can't then Peter and Michael can Miss Melanie <laughs> thanks Paul <laughs> So, um, first of all, we want to thank everybody who took the time to participate. Um, the feedback that we received, the the answers, the, the short answers, the long form answers, I, we got details that told stories. Um, and my background is in voice of the customer, and these are our customers. And we, I, I reading through all of these. I was able to, I think a lot of us, because we did read through um, some of them that were a little more impactful. Um, you got to sit there and really put yourself in their shoes and, and hear hear a story. Um, so for those that aren't aware, we did this survey in October. So we had it open for 31 days. Uh, we emailed it out to various email lists um, within ACB and asked anybody to forward it as, a, as appropriate. We received 72 responses. And what was very interesting, the first thing that was very interesting was uh, our survey takers were very much split down the middle between under 65 and 65 and over. So we saw those that would be actively uh, potentially in the workforce, but then we saw those that were wanting to give us experience about their past or give us experience um, or, or help give experience. So from a mentor perspective, things like that. 
Um, most of our respondents had a college degree, belonged to ACB, and identified as either fully or at least partially employed. Um, and then we had, uh, let me go into the uh, obstacles, I think is a good word for it. So when we went through this, we wanted to find out what, you know, what was good, what was bad, what was lingering. And I think when you answer anything short answer, right, you, you other things come into it. So there are sometimes multiple root causes in a single uh, response. We did find that there were four common obstacles that were identified. Transportation access barriers, insufficient job skills training, confusion about resources for finding jobs and applying for them. So that the whole process, not just the application and interview, like almost the pre the pre-interview process, as well as inaccessible software and spotty computer training when they actually get the job. So they're actually walking in the door. That's part of that. And then part of it is also um, what do they have the skills? Do they have the skills beforehand to go find those jobs, to navigate those websites, um, to get through that? That We've talked about the AI process the last time we were here, all the, the bots that are texting with you and voice recording with you beforehand. Uh, there were other pieces that uh, were a little less common, but still were spotted very much throughout. Um, and one of them that stood out the most, we labeled it employer ignorance. And it was the concept that I got the job, but my employer doesn't give me the full caseload that my peer has. They don't, they gave me the job, but they don't seem to have the faith that I can do the job up to the quality or volume or, or whatnot of my peers. Um, we're always going to see workplace discrimination as a as a, a barrier. So that, that, of course, came up. Um, and then there was difficulty with self-advocacy. Um, and that's something that I think we'll talk about a little bit more also. We saw this common theme that self-advocacy in every piece of the puzzle from the looking for the job to getting the job to I have the job. Um, your interview is, is advocating for yourself, right? It's, it's, it's selling yourself. All of this all falls into this umbrella of self-advocacy that um, really touched on so many different aspects that we know we need to focus for sure um, on that. And um, I think I'll let Peter talk a little bit more about that piece in a minute. Um, let me see if there's anything else that was like mind blowing. Um, I really think really what stood out was just reading experiences. Um, just like that one that I mentioned, right? The gal, the, uh, I don't have the same caseload. That was actually an example with somebody that got a job and she didn't have as many cases as her peers, but she's fully capable. So why don't you, where's the trust? Are you just worried? Are you scared? What is it? So we got a lot of those anecdotes that really drove, I think, a lot of this home to understand more than just checking a box, what our um, members are looking for, what they're struggling with, um, and how we can start trying to build a roadmap out to see how what kind of support we can give. So I'll stop there. That was a lot of words for now. <laughs> I think that's good. So um, Peter, do you want to add, and and then we'll give Michael an opportunity? 
I also want to thank uh, the folks who completed the survey. We really appreciate the 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 feedback. Um, I guess the thing that really surprised me was sort of the frustration about the sort of self-advocacy piece that Melanie was talking about. People really were sort of frustrated by employers' lack of awareness or whatever term you want to use about their capabilities. And how do you sort of convey that that you're able to do this, you know, whatever the job responsibilities are to an employer who's who's not – hasn't quite gotten the big picture yet, as it were. And um, that was the thing that surprised me most about the survey. Um, you know, the other stuff, um, you know, the, the whole technology piece, which I'll let Michael talk about, is just a major issue that we all know about and are frustrated about. Uh, and, uh, you know, the transportation we all know about. Um, and, uh, but, but you know, I think, you know, are there things that that we can? Is there some training that we can do to sort of make this self advocacy a little a little sharpen self advocacy skills a little more than uh, appear to be the case? Or and and the other piece is the, the employer side. Are there things that we can do to work with employers to you know as a, as an organization as an advocacy organization to say, hey, you know, you're you're underutilizing your talent from what we're hearing. How can we help you, you know, uh, you know, overcome that? And I think I'll stop there. Michael. Yeah, so I don't have anything else to add than what's already been said. I think it's been very um, enlightening for for the information that we've been provided by individuals who who went and completed this information um, and who shared. Excuse me, who shared what they had to uh, find in relation to employment. So, uh, I guess my question to all of you is, is, is clearly there is a disconnect that, that, that operates through the employment process. It, it, is it, is it a lack of self-advocacy skills that blind people ought to have or that voc rehab ought to provide by better training? Yes. <laughs> I, I, wow. I don't know if I would separate the two. And I also wonder how much of it is generational. Like, I don't know about you. I've got a 25 year old brother that can't speak up for himself to save his life. Um, yep. <laughs> so I wonder if there's also a generational piece to this. Um, but, but, but if there is, then, then it, it would behoove VR to fix it even better, it would seem to me. Um, because they ought to recognize that that clearly they're not dealing with the population that they had to deal with <clears throat> in our era where 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 uh, you know I, I would i am prepared to bet you hard cash money that if i did a survey of the folks who are sitting here virtually all of us got our own jobs vr didn't get them for us mm-hmm. um i i vr has never gotten me a job ever yeah, same yep. Not even close. Yeah. Same here. Not, Not even close. close. I, I'm, yeah. I'm curious. Um, in your data collection, is there a feeling about how many of them are active clients of a VR agency? No. There um, really weren't very many that mentioned VR in general. They mentioned it in the in the respect of train technology training mm-hmm. and knowing that there is a lack of it. Caseloads are over. You know, overrun 
time, you know, all resources, all of that. Um, but that wasn't even, a, it wasn't denoted whether it was from that. A few people mentioned it, but that was really the only place that it was mentioned. You also mentioned a generational issue, perhaps. Did you collect any data on the ages of people? I know you said above 65, above 64 and below, but is there anything more specific than that? That's round two. So we do have it. Um, it just hasn't been uh, analyzed, analyzed yet. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, good. Well, I so, do think that generational thing is something worth exploring. Um, agreed. By the committee. Absolutely. <clears throat> So I, I am wondering, um, yes, um, those of us who, who got a job pre-ADA um, and lived a lot of our lives pre-ADA had to do our own self-advocacy, uh, you know, going through college and going through graduate school. Um, and, you know, and we, we had to learn those skills. What I'm wondering, and this is strictly wondering, is now folks going through the education system essentially don't have to advocate for stuff as much they you know they they come in they identify the disability the accommodations are provided to them primarily no questions asked and more important than that uh, professors don't want to talk to the students they want to talk to the disability service office staff you know and so the disability service staff is the one that's doing the advocacy for the students which strikes well, me if, if if that's the case the disability office staff is doing a bad job i agree um, but but this seems to be the sort of the the um the template that is used more often than not i know it's the case at the university of missouri when i was working there um and it it, it is a puzzle because uh, you know because the issue is not just working with the students they gotta say to the professor hey talk to the student you know but, but professors are uh, you know they're th what they're told is go through disability services don't go to the student go to the disability service office so it's a it's a again i'm talking about one school but essentially i i, I, I had an awful reputation peter because I would tell professors and students that I wasn't talking to either of them until they talked to each other. Yeah, well, I think that's that's good. But, you know, um, I, we're, we're, you know, I don't know what to say. I agree with you. I think that's the way it should happen. But I don't know if that's the way it's happening uh, these days in on, on the college level. No, I, I don't know either. But I, I think that and and that may be a, a, another Tuesday topic is the whole college environment. And, and you know, certainly that's. <clears throat> that's something for us to look at. Um, I, I am interested in, in asking Michael one question. Um, having looked at the survey, there was some suggestion that uh, technological training was inadequate. Would you like to expand on that and, 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 and talk a little bit about what, what you think the issues might be? So, and and I'm kind of torn on this, and, and I want to preface this with the fact that I have been the type of person who uh, taught myself JAWS. I I would listen to the, the training tapes as I went to sleep in seventh, eighth right. grade. I graduated in 2006. Um, yep. and, and I get the fact that there is a lack of, of training or technology teaching but I really think there's also a disconnect of responsibility of the individual to go out and yep. actually learn. 
And for yep. me, that's difficult to to put it all on. Well, I don't have someone to teach me. Well, if you're not working, why aren't you out there learning the technology? In a lot of the cases with employers, um, you as a, a blind individual can go sign up for some of these free some of these tools that would be used in employment. Let me take a step back. You need to be comfortable with whatever access technology software you're using. If the deficiency is that you don't have the knowledge to learn that tool, then I think you have to have, and, and when I say you, I'm talking to the person who says that I didn't get trained in technology. I think you have to have the desire to actually want to learn the technology. And I don't know where that is, like like where statistically is it that, you know, I want to learn the technology so I can become employed or I want to use not knowing technology so I'm not employed as a crutch to make people understand that I'm not employed. And that may not be a popular opinion, but I realized that I had to teach myself the technology because I didn't have the supports that would be able to help teach that to me. I, I think there's a I think there's a third a third way of looking at it and and that is um uh, I have an expectation that when I get in trouble, somebody's going to get me out of it. Uh, and I, because I think that seems to be more prevalent in our generation, or sorry, in in this generation than it was in ours. You know, I think I think when when we were going into jobs, we sort of figured we had to figure out how to get it done. Yep, absolutely um, true. But I'm not so sure that that people. In, in this generation, because of the, the way they've been sheltered by vision teachers and by college campuses, I'm not sure they're as prepared to recognize that they have the responsibility, you quite rightly say they have, um, because somebody's always showed them how to do what they needed to do. And you learn more by getting yourself out of trouble, because you, first of all, you got to figure out, okay, I'm in trouble. Then you got to figure out, okay, well, what do I do to get out of trouble? And you remember those issues because they were mistakes that you fixed. Yeah. I like to tell people the story of uh, when I was working for a company that owned eight different radio stations in our local market. Um, The initial opportunity for me to show the company that I could do that job uh, was supported by the Oregon Commission for the Blind. So the Oregon Commission for the Blind paid for me to work uh, 20 hours a week for, I think it was four or six weeks. And by the time we were halfway done with that, uh, the uh, company that I was working for had asked, hey, are you interested in coming on after this experience is over? And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what played into that that opportunity of them reaching out is uh, the clock software we used, 100% inaccessible. Um, mm-hmm. I could use my arrow keys to navigate through the days of the week and my, and my left or right arrow keys to go through the days of the week, up and down arrow keys to go through the hours of the day, but JAWS didn't read any of that. Um, and I discovered that. And within about two weeks, I had written, and I'm not a scripter. I wrote some rudimentary JAWS scripts that actually made it so I could do the job. Um, and they had had seen you're willing to experiment to see what you can do to be able to be successful in this opportunity. And it, you, when uh, we had live calls uh, or, or live remotes, 
the mixing console was completely inaccessible. They showed it to me once and I was able to to remember what buttons went where and what took them on the air and what yep. took the remote people off the air. And that that impacted the way that my supervisor saw, look at Michael, he can troubleshoot. And I think that really is, is huge for someone who's trying yep. to be employed because everything is not going to be accessible. Yeah, we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on this, but um, I designed a, a four-credit college course in access technology um, for for blind folks at the college where I work, and uh, I think it was forty percent of the marks um, had to do with a a get out of trouble exercise that people had to solve as part of the final exam. And if folks couldn't do that, they stood very little chance of passing the class. Before we go out of technology here uh, yes brian here uh, i spent 34 years teaching blind and visually impaired people to use technology for employment and education uh, and managing others doing so uh, and i worked out some numbers here in massachusetts where i live <clears throat> and where i work and statistically there was no way that those people who were looking for work on the active VR caseload right. in Massachusetts could receive training. There were more people added to the to that list in the course of a year than that got training in that year. So we were running in front of a snowball that was catching up on uh, to us going downhill. I do yeah. think that that VR needs to find a way to provide <clears throat> initial computer literacy. Now that doesn't yep. mean you know how you get you, we're not going to train you to play uh, uh, online games and that kind of stuff. People self-identify as having, oh yes, I use computers and then when you drill down to what they use a computer for, it's not for employment oriented skills. Um, they don't know how to do more in Word than write down a note. They don't know more about Excel uh, other than reading a spreadsheet. Creating one is beyond them. What, what Then a lot of these kinds of skills that would be pre-employment skills that you'd want them to have. What's worse, though, is here in Massachusetts, the state is covered by all of four technology specialists out of the state agency who are responsible for going to an employment site and doing an evaluation of the accessibility of that particular employment opportunity, let alone going back to teach the specific skills that that person is going to need to do. Uh, you know, it's one thing being able to write a script it's another thing being able to uh write a script that can handle a lot of the software that's out there right now uh so you know i would say that the system is not succeeding in letting right. technology be the great equalizer it has not made things equal it's more of the same one of the interesting decisions that was made in Florida recently, I guess about two years ago, that's, that's actually pretty forward-looking and pretty exciting, is any client 
who has a case open in the Division of Blind Services, whether they're whether they're a baby or or an eighty year old, uh, is entitled to Jaws or Zoom text for free. Um, so yeah. it's interesting. All right, so. Um, Marianne, uh, others, you guys have any questions for the Employment Committee about their survey? I have another, and that is, do you have any numbers dealing with people over 64 uh, having to continue to work as a matter of just financial survival or trying to find uh, employment uh, after retirement to augment their uh, retirement savings. Yeah, so Brian, same thing. It's in, we have the data. It just hasn't been aggregated yet. But what I can tell you is from reading the, um, uh, oh, what do you call them? The, the anecdotes. Um, mm -hmm. not, not really the case based on the anecdotes, at least. Um, there were many that identified themselves as retired and happy to be so and <laughs> happy to uh, provide their feedback based on past experience. Uh, but there wasn't any, at least anecdotally, anything really related to still having to work or finding employment after retirement. Um, but we have the data, so it'll be in the age aggregation that we do. Excellent. Very good. Um, Larry, Marianne. I have no uh, Rick, questions, questions this time. Thank you. Rick? I've got one more. <laughs> I want to know, does anybody reply that they are self-employed versus yes. having an employer? Yep. Give me a second and I'll get you a number. Uh, 18% said they were self-employed or uh, slash entrepreneur. Very good. Interesting. I think so. I, I, yep, go I, ahead. I'll do it quickly. I thought, I, I think I told this story and it's true. Uh, I'm one of those who retired because the job changed dramatically throughout the pandemic. And I was happy being retired. Very happy because I enjoyed doing all my other hobbies and never had to worry about I didn't have to worry about actually continuing to make money because I did well at the job, but I'm glad I did this. But I've also told ACB that in a few years, and I don't know yet when that is, I will retire fully and I'll be done and I mm -hmm. will do more things. But while I can still work and uh, even though it's because it's a passion, because I love doing what I'm doing, that's that's the kind of chart that I'm following for the next several years. Nice. Yep. All right, Marianne, let's see if we have a couple of comments or questions from the audience, and, and then we're going to move on to topic two. We do. Hey, Paul. Um, yes. Before we go to topic two, I want to talk about or have them all talk about what we are doing as a result of this data and what our, what our plans are in the future based on this data that we've, that we've gleaned, if that's okay, before we move on to topic two. It, I, I'll, I'll get back to you. Okay. And, and I do yep. kind of have an answer for Brian. I didn't realize this was in here. Um, so we did have a category um, of older and returning to the workforce. Mm -hmm. And that was 20%. 
So without well, aggregating listen, actual numbers, well, that's at least yeah. one subset. We I don't find that this. at all surprising percentage-wise. Yeah, we found the same trend in Florida, uh -huh. uh, Brian. Yeah, and, it, and older, it, older people yeah, are some of it is, older people is are going back to work. Going back to work as a matter of financial survival. Yes, uh, we hear that in the news about the our general populace, but there are fewer opportunities because a lot of those jobs are um, by their nature. Uh, low-skilled, uh, where you cannot really adapt the job uh, for its accessibility. Anyway, I think that that's something well worth pursuing, especially for ACB's demographic. I think so, too. So I gave um, Anisio permission to no. unmute. Mm -hmm. I think Correa. I did, yeah. Yep, you are. Yeah. Yep. So it's not a thank you, Paul. Not a question, but more of a comment. I I think that there is, and by the way, I'm not in the under sixty four group. So, but I do think that is a generational. I'll be curious to read the, to the results when you do the analysis, because not to say that you know I walked to school in the snow barefoot and all that, but I think. One of the things that Peter mentioned, I think has a lot, a lot of uh, value. There's such in my the last two years of my full time career before retiring, I worked with with the pre vocation and vocational skills for young teens uh, moving from high school to college or to work. And uh, and at the same time, I had an opportunity to supervise a summer program where we hire a lot of young people, sighted and blind people. And I'm telling you, the resumes I received from sighted kids, some some of them college kids and some of them, you know, seniors in high school, both their resumes and their interviews were so pathetic. And so they lacked so much the ability to speak, to to reason, to to provide all those skills, <clears throat> pre-job skills that we know are so necessary that I, I began to to correlate what we see among our blind clients, young clients, the same thing. They are the same. And there used to be a time when I grew up that we all felt that we had to be better than the person next to us, especially if they were sighted. And I don't think there's that anymore. So we we basically, or by we, I mean, you know, blind people, just reflecting what the general status of society is, which is pretty dismal, if you want to tell my opinion. <laughs> and technology is just one of them. I mean, I, you know, like Michael, I did learn on my own. I did, and I continue to learn. You know, if there are podcasts, I will, I know where they are. I know how to access how to access um, um, programs on ACB or, or directly from Vespero or whatever, but yep. because I want to continue to learn, I don't see that. I don't see that need because, as you said, Paul, someone else is going to, you know, if we get into trouble, someone else will fix it or someone else will 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 be able to. Yep. Uh, it's their responsibility. Now, I don't know whose responsibility it is to change this, but I'm hoping that as a result of your survey, 
that ACB can uh, develop some strategies to um, to at least begin to 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 address these. Yep, Mr. Anisho, thank you very much. Stick around. We'd, well, we'd like your comments on 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 our second topic as I'll well. I'll be back we get for sure. That. Excellent. We have Elizabeth Bowden. Liz, how are you? Hello. Gotcha. Hello. There we go. Okay. She I didn't I didn't hear her say my name, so I was like, can I go now? Yep. Uh you can go now. <laughs> this is Elizabeth Bowden. Um I just want to talk to about advocacy and I know when I was teaching, I was one of the teachers that was teaching technology that gave people homework and told yep. them how important it was for them to learn because it was their highway to the rest of the world and the rest of their life, how productive they were going to be and all that. They didn't do it. They wouldn't do their homework. They would, they always expected somebody else to do, to get them out of the bucket. Um, like yeah. Mike, I was one of the ones that taught myself. Um, when I was learning computers, I had just become employed. My employer wouldn't let me go have computer training. So I taught myself and then I taught other people sided ones at where I worked. But um, a lot of people don't have that built in. It's just not there. You can't give it to them. You can't teach it to them. They won't make that as part of their personality. And so that's why they expect somebody else to do it for you throughout time. They do. Thank you, Ms. Liz. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to fix it, but that's just always going to be there because of the populations, yeah. the way that they. I, I, I think we need to fix it if, if yeah, we're going to do very possible. much about unemployment. If it's and, possible. And, yeah. I'm not but sure. You, I think you're right. I'm not sure that I'm not sure we can, but, but Michael Babcock will tell us how. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. We have, Thank you, Liz. Penny Moss. Hey, yep. how hey Penny. How are y'all doing? Good. Can Listen, I, you know, I forgot about that survey. I wish I'd have filled it out. And I'm, I'm in the lower, the above 65 group. And I, there's a lot of things that I, I want to say, but I'm trying to keep it as brief as I can. I was one of the generation that grew up in public school. And, you know, at the time that I went to public school, you know, that was not the norm. And I remember being taught the expectation that the only problem you have is, is being blind, you know, and you can do anything that everybody else does. And we got that socialization. And I don't think one of the shortcomings, I think, was that we were not prepared for the barriers that we were going to face when we got ready to go to work. And um, I think VR does a whole lot better than they used to in preparing young people for employment because we really didn't. When I was, you know, got out of high school in 72, and we really didn't have that much preparation. And I remember starting my work with a typewriter and Opticon attachment and a Braille writer. And, Amen. You know, things have really changed. And living with blindness is so much different now than it was then. And my thing is, I think that um, 
two or three things. Um, one is, I think people have different learning styles. And, uh, you know, some people can teach themselves skills. They can get a manual and they can figure it out. Other people really need the individual instruction because they learn better by hearing it and by doing it and by being watched. And I think sometimes there's expectation that here's a book and you just get it. And it's it can be really frustrating. And I, I have learned better how to look at a manual and figure things out. But it can be frustrating, especially, you know, I like having a Braille book. And if you don't have a Braille manual, I, to me, it's harder to get things. But I think that's a problem. And I also think that VR and um, doesn't always teach people how to respond to interview questions and i you know i interviewed for a lot of jobs and i didn't know how to answer some of those questions like tell us about yourself or where do you want to be in five years i mean i i was just not prepared in a lot of ways and then when i did get to the point that i was prepared i interviewed for jobs that the agency I was with had already decided who they wanted in that position. And sometimes, you know, the best you can do, the best interview, you can have the best presentation. But when it's decided that somebody else is going to get the job, you can't, there's not much you can do about that. And um, anyway, Mm -hmm. so um, I, I thank you for listening to my comments and, uh, I'll hush so y'all can respond. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Penny. We appreciate your call and, and your points. They were all well made. Thank you. Miss mm-hmm. Marianne. We have Ray Campbell. You may unmute. All right. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Yep. Good. Sometimes uh, this there's a button on this USB mic thing and if i hit it it turns the mic off so anyway um thanks for uh thanks for this um i just have a a couple of comments and a question my one comment is that i think part of it of this and why maybe you don't people don't have some of the skills uh, that they should have or whatever i think some of it goes back to upbringing Um, i grew up on a farm and I had parents that had expectations that, like, just like my brother, when I was five years old and old enough to understand, I had chores to do. I had responsibilities. And, and you know, it didn't matter if it was 20 below or 90 above. The animals needed to get fed. And it was just something you had to do. So I learned from that what was meant by responsibility. And I learned, you know, through that. So I think, I think sometimes family... And, you know, the way that you're generally brought up has a lot to do with the, you know, people maybe not having some of the skills. You know, as I was sharing with someone the other day, that um, being in extracurricular activities in high school, uh, and I'm a blind school grad, um, was one of the best things because I learned things like teamwork and that, you know, we all had to work together and stuff. So, just wanted to share kind of where I come come at this from. I'm, I am somebody that's been very successful in the employment space. I've had several jobs, but I've never had trouble, really had a lot of trouble getting a job. 
Uh, been lucky. Have, haven't been fired more than twenty times. <laughs> nope, no, nope, <laughs> definitely not. Um, my question, my question is, and I don't remember all the questions on the survey, guys. So forgive me if I'm asking something that's a little out of line. That um, did, were you able to glean anything out of the data? Uh, not for people that were are unemployed, but people that are or maybe feel that they're underemployed. You know, maybe they could be doing better, but they needed to put food on the table and clothes on their back, so they just took a job. Any anything stick out ar- uh, around that? It didn't. Um, so I'll tell you that they're a little under seventeen to sixteen point seven percent identified as underemployed. Um, Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's unemployed. Uh, 8.3 identified as underemployed. And we defined that as not having enough paid work or not doing work that makes full use of their skills and abilities. So there were six oh, respondents that even identified it that way. Yeah, so okay. it, it was a slice we didn't really slice. We can, we can slice it, oh. but um, it's a very small small amount. It's interesting that it was that small, I you know, because I would think... Uh, it would be bigger, but interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, if Thanks, you stick guys. around for for the second half, there's um there there's a lot more openness in some of the data we're going to be talking about later that that suggests underemployment. So yeah. stay Sounds tuned. Good. I'll, I'll hang around. Ray Ray makes a very valid point, though. Parenting is probably uh, one of the chief influencers in terms of you know the the path someone takes through life and, and that's true for people with disabilities is true for everybody and uh, you know we all know the the cases where um you know parents have um you know uh, ray you were very lucky that your parents had those kind of expectations for you there are a lot of parents that just, you know, undermine any attempts at, and overprotect. Yeah, and overprotect mm-hmm. and, yeah. and under, undermine any attempts mm-hmm. that the quote unquote system may have to, um, you know, to move things along. So, yeah, I, think, I, I, I weighed two pounds six ounces when I was born, and I tried to persuade my mom that that meant I shouldn't get spanked. <laughs> but it didn't work. Probably didn't work. Had that um, work for you? Bob. Yeah. No, no. No. I think. I think that one of the. I think that my situation partly was my parents never went to college. Neither one of them did, and they wanted me to do that, and you know, to be better than you know, have a better situation. They and and they understood. I probably was never gonna. I wasn't gonna farm, uh, so I needed to do something else. So. Although I, 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 I could, I could, I could slap pigs pretty darn good. <laughs> nice, thank you, Mr. Ray. And we have Chris Bell. Chris, good evening, Bell. Great show. Um, so I'm wondering. I didn't take the survey. I'm sorry, but I'm wondering to what extent your survey uh, sought information as to people who are multiply disabled. Um, I because uh, as one example. I have uh, many spatial learning disabilities, so I, I have a hard time using technology and learning technology. And, and you have a hearing impairment as well, do you not, Chris? Yes, I'm, and I'm hearing impaired. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I have a spatial, I really don't understand spatial things or tables or yeah. sequences. But um, <clears throat> quite apart from my own limitations, there are a lot of people that are multiply disabled. So you could be blind plus 
And I just wondered whether your survey got at that. And the second thing, we're talking about what VR uh, should teach people, but I'm wondering today about special education and people in, uh, you know, high school and what kind of, uh, what's, what's special ed doing for assistive technology training for kids? I have no idea because I'm, <laughs> I'm far older than that. But my ex- my experience says not enough, Chris. Well, I'm sure that's true. I mean, I, I'm sure that's true. But I, I, what I will try and say is I don't want to just lay this on VR because people should be learning long before uh, you. I, you know, I, I think it. Work. I think it. I think you're right to say that. Um, ideally, um, if people are going to be as successful as they should be in school, a lot of the training should have happened then. Um, but it, it, it certainly wasn't 10 years ago when I retired, it wasn't happening. I'd like to also throw in the words lifelong learning because you learned it when you were in high school, uh, you learned it for academic reasons. Um, a lot of kids and I'm going to pick on Braille kids for a moment, just out of fun who get a piece of technology called a braille note taker but they don't leave with a skill to sit down at a windows or mac computer to do work yeah because they're so good at that note taker to get their academic activities dealt with well i I mean i haven't been around kids in in a you know disabled children in a very long time but i'd be i'm shocked to hear this because the opportunities for using the Chromebook and the Macs and, you know, in school, in school are so vast that it surprises me that kids are not coming out with, you know, because, you know, I like you, Paul and others walked around with a portable typewriter and a braille writer. And I thought, I always thought, damn, if I, could have gone to college during the time when computers and the web were available, I'd have finished. Yep. Well, and what I was going to say to Brian um, is, is that, is, is that I absolutely take the point that you're making, but, but the reality is at least the reality that I know uh, is that uh, it is that unfortunately there just doesn't seem to be uh, a, a willingness on the part of a lot of the folks who are going through rehab now um, to to do more than they they are required to do, um, and and there isn't there there isn't a lot of willingness to take initiative that I've seen. I would say that you know we talk about this term dealing with things like SSI and those kinds of supports as um, safety nets, right? So maybe you are being discriminated against and you're qualified, but it's to, due to no fault of your own, things don't work out. So blindness in and of itself makes you eligible for SSI, safety net. Do we also run into a problem that uh, the safety net applies to things beyond dollars and cents safety net. Sure. Uh, where um, the, the expectation, one, uh, maybe it was one that you learned as a child, but 
the number one, two, and three causes of blindness are age-related. And I don't mean uh, the super-aged. You know, retinitis, retinitis pigmentosa is right there in your employment years. Uh, so people have opinions about who needs to be taken care of uh, in our society. Um, and I think that that plays a role both for those who are cited in interacting with blind people and blind people themselves. Bam, you're blind. It doesn't mean suddenly you've seen the light, so to speak, and understand that blindness is something that can be dealt with in a practical, useful kind of way. So to go back to what Ray and Rick said, I did attend the Daytona Rehab Center when I was training as a vendor. And what I saw there and in my own, you know, the circle of people that I know who attended from SWFCB is that um, go back to it's not just their, their, you know, parents. It's not just kids who have this problem, but people would go home for the weekend and then they'd come back and they'd be like right back almost to square one about the attitude about blindness. You know, they, they went home and got taken care of. And, um, you know, so I, I saw a lot of um, non-support and I think there's two things about that. One is that of course, you know, people allow it, you know, you, you're as an adult, allow yourself to be taken care of like that. But um, to the rehab um, system. Um, I've never seen one yet where you you make it mandatory for families to come in and sit and talk about what your loved one is learning and what the you know how they need to continue to be learning. So I think that's a failing in the system in in the programs that I've um, seen. Absolutely, um, absolutely. So, I think um, there. I think there are some. Um, local community programs in Florida who do that as a matter of course. Um, the rehab center used to do it. Um, they may I, I do it again. Do well, they weren't yeah. doing it when I was there in 2012, um, but they may, Jay Boyle, who's running it now, seems to be pretty, um, seems to be doing a pretty good job there. So I'm not sure if they're doing it yet, but I think it's essential. I don't think anybody comes out of there and goes home um, and does well unless their family is on board. Well, it's it's actually more than just just the family. I think yeah, I think there's I think there's they're, a lot of things circle, that we need to do. Circle. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Anybody else? Paul, we are I do want we to are in here. Chris's question. Yes. Um. So, Chris, we didn't have a checkbox for anyone to identify with additional disabilities, but. We did ask um, when describing what obstacles they've experienced, what impacted, um, and we did have additional barriers, um, and we we aggregated that into race, sex, age, and additional disabilities, and it was four percent. But that would be oh, okay. you know relatively self-identified in that anecdote. Great, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter, talk to me about the future. Yeah, so thank you, Paul. And I hope Mel and Mike, Michael will help me with this. So based on, you know, our understanding of the of the results, and we're still, as you can tell, sort of tabulating them, we're doing a couple of things that we hope will move things forward a couple of inches. 
Um, the first thing is we're working with bits um, on, a, on a couple of projects. We're going to do a number of, uh, a couple of sessions with them uh, as part of the conference and convention. Um, one having to do with artificial intelligence in the uh, workplace uh, and education. Uh, another having to do with dealing with these technology hassles, as I call it, in the workplace. How do you deal with them? You know, and we're going to, I'm not sure how we're going to structure it yet, but we're going to, you know, uh, sort of talk about the resources that are out there, kinds of things that you might be able to do to address the challenges that you experience, because we all know they happen in the workplace. And so we're going to focus on that. Um, The other thing that we're going to do is do a session at the convention dealing with self-advocacy in the workplace. And it is, we're going to do it in person. And we're hoping that what we're going to do is develop some case studies and get people to practice a little bit, you know, because the only way you can develop a skill is by practicing in a safe space. And we are going to try to make that happen for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and then the other thing I, I, I do want to promote is our, our podcasts. We, over the past couple of years, have been interviewing, um, uh, started interviewing with a number of blind folks who are doing what we call non-traditional career paths which essentially means not working in the, in the voc rehab system. Um, and so we've interviewed people within all different um, uh, paths and doing different kinds of things. Um, and more recently, we're trying to reach out to people who are hiring blind folks and uh, what they're looking for, uh, you know, the opportunities that are available. Um, and we're also beginning to interview people who are sort of trying to bridge the gap between those folks who are looking for jobs and employers trying to find people. So we are hoping over the next period of time to do more of that, those employers who are hiring. And um, so, cause that is one of the things that the, that, that the folks wanted was what, what employers are actually having some success in hiring blind people. Uh, so that's, that, that's what we're doing. And of course we op- are open to other um, suggestions based on, you know, uh, uh, whatever you, you folks are experiencing, but based on the survey, that's what we're planning on doing, at least in the short term. And I'm really hoping that our work with bits will, will, will mushroom. We, we already, Michael as, as a part of bits. And so is another member of our committee, uh, Rosanna. And so we're hoping we can leverage that to do some creative stuff with, with the bits crowd, um, to, you know, to, to move this process forward. We're not going to solve all the problems of the universe, but we can move things forward a little bit. Um, and that's what we're aiming to do. So, I so hope that I, I did something, you, Miguel. Yeah, I want to ask you one question before we, before we let, why are you, why are you sort of dissing VR type jobs? Because most of the, uh, it's not a question of dissing so much as that we wanted to make the point that people, because often what happens is, when people are looking at career options, they don't necessarily look at the, the full uh, panoply of possibilities, as it were. And so they sort of go by default to voc rehab. And I'm not against voc rehab. We need good people in voc rehab. But I'm, I'm afraid that that blind folks are sort of being steered in that direction. And we're trying to say, hey, there are other possibilities out there. I only have anecdotal data, but my anecdotal data says that the number of blind people who are going to rehab is falling every year. Um, and, and the result of that is that services delivered by book rehab are, are significantly less good. You, you may uh, be right. I, I, the stories I've heard are different. You know, that the people say things like, well, I didn't realize there are all these other options out there. And so I sort of, sort of, uh, all right, I'll do book rehab stuff. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need good voc rehab people. 
It's just right. um, the work that I did. Uh, I heard the story way too many times to sort of ignore it. So, Michael, respond to Peter's question and then talk to us about your employment podcast. So um, when it comes to the employment podcast, uh, the the thing that I do is uh, Let's Get to Work, which is part of the Employment Committee podcast. I don't have a separate podcast for that. Um, I, thought you, I thought you were doing one on 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 your on your network that that was aimed at helping people learn technology that they're using on the job. Nope. Nope, you might be thinking of a different Michael, but we have not focused on that. Although that is a great idea that maybe I'll <laughs> run with. Uh, but no, we we haven't yet. Um, one thing that I think really uh, highlights the wide variety of individuals who we have chatted with for Let's Get to Work um, mm-hmm. is I'm thinking of Hobie Wedler, who is yeah. a blind wine taster. And he takes people on, on the uh, experience of tasting wine without sight involved in that experience and a lot of times i imagine because i i don't know this for sure but i imagine people might think hey we we can't do that or uh we interviewed a retired 911 dispatcher mm-hmm. i in high school uh ninth or tenth grade uh, reached out to our local 911 dispatch and asked them hey i'd love to get involved in being a 911 dispatcher and immediately the idea was shot down when they found out i was blind because i wouldn't be able to read the map and then i heard how he had made accommodations for himself to be able to be successful at that employment and i think it's those type of stories that we've told with let's get to work that helps emphasize the fact that hey uh there though you may have been told no Here's some ways people have been creative to solve the problems that you're going to face as well. Where, where can those folks, where can folks find those podcasts? On acbmedia.org, simply type in "Let's Get to Work" Thank or you in your much. favorite podcast app. Ta-da. Right, I have that on my Apple Podcasts as one of my favorites. <clears throat> Paul, um, I don't know if you, um, Herbie has his hand raised, which means apparently that there's someone in Clubhouse who wants to speak. Do you want to take Got that it. now? Let's- I will take it now. Okay, Herbie, go ahead. All right, uh, Cecily, and I don't know how to pronounce your uh, last name, so I do apologize. Hello, Miss Cecily. Welcome. Maybe pronounce C. I'm trying to understand my voice over here, so I do apologize. Maybe you're talking about me. It's yep. Cecil. Cecil, okay. Cecil, go, go ahead. For it. All right. Let me go, Francis. I'll call you back. I was on the phone. I'm sorry. I just popped in. Yeah, I'm in Pensacola here. I'm a member of the uh, our Northwest Florida chapter. Yep, I remember you, Cecil. How are you? Yeah, who are you now? I I am in Jacksonville now. Yeah, what's your name? I'm oh. Paul Edwards. Well, I guess I do know you. How you doing, Paul? I am well, sir. That's wonderful. <clears throat> yeah, I just dropped in. I was on uh-huh. the phone. At Ex- I had to clear off the phone conversation. Uh-huh. So uh, you're kind of self-employed. Are you still doing DJ stuff or are you doing other stuff? I'm on the radio five nights a week over on Oldie's Funhouse. I'm real happy about that. I mean, I'll look at you, sir. 
So I'm, I'm on there, and I'm on Ears Radio, and I'm also on Monty Siebert's station, Z Country. Well, he's got two stations up in Huntington, Indiana. So I'm still doing that. I do live performances occasionally. I haven't done one in a while. Well, that's excellent. We miss you at FCB, so come to the convention this time. The state convention and the national yeah. the state convention going to be this year. That It's in Jacksonville as well, so get a chance same to place. visit Jacksonville twice. Um, the, no. Same, a different place. No, the na- Nationals at the Hyatt, and we're at the West Bank. So West Bank, okay. Yep. Maybe I can, you know, get Pat to come since I'm the vice president of our chapter. Get Pat, she's our president, you know, and maybe Pat and I will come. That'd be excellent. We'd love to see both of you. Wonderful. Thank you, Mr. Cecil. Appreciate you. Okay. Yep. All right. Anybody else, Miss Marianne? Nope. That's it. You're clear for now. Ta da. <laughs> so the Big employment <laughs> so the employment committee um the employment committee is uh has certainly done um more uh as a committee over the past couple of years than employment committees have traditionally done in in ACB um are you guys looking at um continuing um uh, beyond the convention and and interested in people helping you make plans? I think the best way to answer that is um, uh, right now we're focusing on the convention uh, and uh, you know both the virtual and in person and after that we're going to reevaluate and see where where we're at. Uh, you well, know, there's, there's a lot on the table right now. And so we're trying to sort of, uh, and the other thing I, I also think that we are trying to do, um, over time is there, there's potential lots of work that other affiliates could do and maybe doing that we're just not aware of. For example, I would imagine that, um, occasionally bits folks, uh, the technology folks are, you know, or, uh, get a question about employment. And, you know, try to do some informal counseling. I know we friends and art do that once in a while. I wonder yep. if the lawyers are doing something similar. And if so, are there, are there ways that we can sort of uh, collaborate to, you know, to, to provide better service um, to those folks who are asking those kinds of questions? So that's I suspect thing that there are. I suspect there yep. are, too. But right now we haven't found any uh, any evidence, but we haven't really looked yet. So we're sort of moving in that direction as well. But basically, we're just. We're, we want to, you know, get through the conventions, then we're going to evaluate and see what's next. Well, speaking speaking certainly for myself, but I suspect for the whole Tuesday Topics group, uh, we want you guys to be around so we can harass you all next year. <laughs> that's right. We are happy to be on your show, depending on what, you know, we're, we're <laughs> so it's great to be on your show. And that's where the harassment will begin. The harassment works both ways, though. Remember yes. that. Good. Right. Bring that's it on. Good. <laughs> Bring it on. Absolutely it's true. more fun that way. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, um, uh, Melanie, Michael, final comments before we move on to big data? Nope. No. Very good. I want to move on to the big data. It's it's Very interesting. <laughs> so. I'm going to end up talking for a few minutes now because I want to, I, I want to um, do some acknowledging and, and also provide an introduction so people will understand where all of this is coming from. Last year, 
um, the Vision Serve Alliance, along with a number of other groups, uh, worked at producing a set of data that dealt with senior citizens who were blind. Um, the core of that data was taken from a survey um, that is put together by the Center for Disease Control, and a gentleman named Mr. Cruz was at the heart of that. He's been interested in aging and blindness for a long time and and really does a tremendous job as as a spokesman for the gathering of that kind of data and and as a person in favor of saying to folks in the blindness field very loudly, um, if you're going to try to sell your need for services, you have to have data that indicates more precisely what the problems are, more precisely what the needs are, and more precisely what some of the solutions might be. So that data came out among the groups that was involved in the developing, not the developing, but in in the dissemination of that data <clears throat> was AAVL. Mr. Cruz presented at our last convention um, and um, uh, we got an opportunity to, to to hear some of what the uh, the big data survey was like for seniors. The decision was made after that, or exactly when it was made, that phase two would happen. And phase two was intended to deal with the gathering of data on people from the age of 18 to 64. That data um, has very recently um, been released. Um, it's available for all states, as is the big data for seniors. Um, and I would encourage any state that you guys have an influence on to acquire this data, because I think this data provides more information that can be drilled down directly to county level so that even districts or or local community programs can actually use this data um, to to get a better idea of of, of what the needs are um, and and also what some of the incidences of blindness and other things in in their local areas are uh, i'm pretty excited about uh, the fact that this data has come out and i'm also excited uh, about some of the things that the, the data demonstrates. <clears throat> is it a perfect survey? No. Um, is is the the data uh, uh, unimpeachable? Probably not. It it did it, it did begin with a sample of four hundred and forty thousand folks uh, who were engaged in a pretty long telephone survey sponsored by the CDC. The data is old. It was developed in 2019, or it, it existed in 2019. And that was purposeful because it was felt that it would be advantageous to get data <clears throat> that, um, that was gathered um, before COVID came along, because that would be much more normal, if, if in quotation marks, than um, data that would have been developed during the period of COVID and even perhaps in the post-COVID period. So there is an awful lot of data in, in the report uh, that came out. It's about 60 pages long. 
and probably two-thirds of it covers the nation as a whole, while the other third of it covers um, Florida. So I'm going to read just a little bit from the introduction of the report that will that will initially give you some ideas of some of the components um, that were involved in um, this this big data um, and um, and and it will also give you a sense of some of the information we now have that I don't think we had before <clears throat> because one of the things that I think that I think we would all agree on is that up until this survey, we really didn't have um, data that was reliable and had the imprimatur of a combination of two components. Number one, the, the Centers for Disease Control, and number two, the U.S. Census, um, which between them are probably two of, uh, of, of the most widely valued um, surveys um, that are out there. So the introduction says, in the United States, about 8.7 million people, about 4.7% of the population between the ages of 18 and 64 years, report blindness and low vision in response to this question. <clears throat> so this was the question that was at the heart of the survey. Are you blind or do you have serious difficulty seeing even when wearing glasses? So the, for the first time, we actually have a statistic that says 8.7 million people um, between uh, 18 and 64. Um, that actually is <clears throat> not far from what the most common figures are, though it's probably a little higher than most people thought it would be. Um, of those, 41.6% report they are working. 41.6%, not this, not this 30-70 anymore. 10.5% report they are out of work. Of the remaining population, 8.1% are homemakers, 3.9% are students, 5.1% are retired. Most troubling, however, is that 28.9% report they can't, can't, can't work. This distribution of workforce participation stands in stark contrast to working age people without vision impairment, where 70.4% are working, 70.4%, 5.9% are out of work, 6.3% are unable to work. So compare, <coughs> excuse me, that 6.3% who are unable to work with 30% essentially of people who are blind or visually impaired who claim they're unable to work. Multiple factors contribute to uh, the capacity decision to participate in the labor force. Some barriers include difficulties with transportation or employer attitudes, certainly. 
Additional barriers may be defined by social and health factors, including income, education, and the prevalence and effects of chronic health conditions. Many of these factors are subsumed under the concept of social determinants of health. Um, I could spend lots more time reading, but I think what I'd like to do instead is talk a little bit about some of the statistics that were scariest, and then I will invite members of the employment committee with whom I shared this report and others who've seen it um, to see if they have any comments um, about the report. Um, one of the things that this report seems to suggest uh, is that the income level of people who are blind or have low vision uh, is considerably lower than some of us thought. And that even for those people who are blind, who are working, um, there is a very high percentage of folks whose income levels are still uh, under $25,000 a year. Um, there is no differentiation in this report between part-time and full-time employment. And it's probably a weakness of the report. And clearly there may be factors like, um, like not wanting to mess with SSI um, that, that are resulting in the low income of folks. <clears throat> Just as significant though, is the prevalence of other chronic conditions and other disabilities among the blind and visually impaired population one of the things that I think surprised all of us who looked at this survey was over 40% of the folks who were blind or visually impaired all the way across the board, whether they were working or whether they were unable to work, whether they were in that 30% were unable to work, made it clear that they, <clears throat> that they were depressed a substantial amount of the time. And the way this survey measured depression was to say, how many days out of the last 30 did you feel as though um, dot, dot, dot? And, and they, they use that for physical components, and they also use it for, uh, for, for mental health issues. And that huge statistic certainly suggests that there's a lot of work that, that we need to be doing. Uh, the prevalence of diabetes, I don't think anybody's surprised at. Um, there, there are some other really interesting statistics in terms of comorbidity. The folks who can't work, many of them say they, they can't, for the most part, climb up and down stairs or do errands. And that could be because they don't have O&M training. And if that's the case, we can certainly do something about it. But it could also be um, that there really are some comorbidities or some other issues um, that are that are out there. So I've talked about some of the initial components of this survey. Um, let me let me open it to Maybe Melanie. Melanie, did you notice any other things that 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 you found significant and what you got a chance to look at? I think I was just dumbfounded by the depression. Yeah. It just. Yep. And and so many different factors 
playing into that in general in society blindness or not blindness like i mean i know when i was unemployed that's depressing <laughs> period right you're you're worried about the next paycheck um yeah that that yep. i i think that just kind of overtook my my thoughts when i was reading through it yep paul you mentioned and compared <clears throat> statistics for those who are blind and visually impaired versus those who are not was the yep. depression statistic also compared in that fashion yeah it, it is um and i think that uh i'm not sure i have it here but hold on let me see because i i tried to precede some of the report mm -hmm. um I have uh, forty one point nine percent for blindness with depression, and none is nineteen point three percent. Unless I'm looking at the wrong numbers. I don't think you're looking at the right ones. No, Thank you, Michael. Right. Um, what what? <laughs> excuse me. What? Uh, just a, another quick quote. People with vision impairments working for wages, those self-employed, and students while substantially better than those not working, still report high prevalence of diabetes, depression, and hearing impairments at levels much higher than the general population. Many of, the, of those who work continue to work with serious health concerns. Among people for working for wages and those who are self-employed, a third, 32 and 33% respectively, report fair to poor health. 50% those out of work for less than a year or for more than a year report fair to poor health. 36% of people working for wages and 57% of those self-employed report incomes below 25,000. Although 20 to 25% of workers report incomes greater than 75,000. So it, 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 there is this huge cascading picture that's beginning to emerge that there are a bunch of blind people out there working for pennies, you guys, and, and, and that the vast majority of them, the vast majority of them show no likelihood of, of moving out of that because of the other components of their lives that appear to be getting in their way like poor health poor hearing depression it it, it really is not a pretty picture uh, what, what this reminds me of paul as I, I i also was struck by the depression piece um even for those who are working there is a high level of depression and we could speculate as to why that is I mean, you know for the next three hours if we wanted to sure um, but you know going to work being the only blind person can be a real challenge um uh you know with all the technology issues and so on and so forth we talked about earlier um you know it, it it's a it can be really difficult sometimes to not be depressed um the other issue that struck me about the report that we i don't think i focused on much is the whole issue of education. Um, I sort of assumed that the level of education among blind and non-disabled uh, people was, was sort of the same equivalent, but it's not. 
you know, I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but uh, a lot of black folks clearly are getting high school, uh, are graduating graduating from high school, um, not to mention going to college. You know, our survey, most of the folks who answered it had college degrees. That's apparently that's, the majority. That's apparently is, the minority. Which is just uh, an indication of what an elitist organization ACB is. Well, that, that was sort of my <laughs> reaction too when I looked at this. Um, uh, I don't know how to respond beyond that. It's just that I, I that the education piece was was a bit of a shock to me too. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, Melanie and I are sort of on the same page. The whole depression thing was really kind yep. of. I think really we all disturbing. felt that way. Within the twenty nine percent of the working age population unable to work, thirty five percent, thirty five percent have not completed high school, and twenty eight percent report annual incomes of less than ten thousand dollars. I mean, that is pretty scary, you guys. I mean, so so by far, the most disadvantaged group of blind people, and we can assume that 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 minority members are probably a large proportion of that class. Um, but the hugest proportion of these most disadvantaged folks are, are in a place where it's going to be awfully difficult for them to climb out. So yeah, pretty scary. And um, I guess the, I, I, you know, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's easy to get depressed about these statistics, and I've been sort of rustling with, okay, you know, what 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 do we do now? You know, I mean, this is like, and we're obviously not going to be able to solve all the problems of the universe, but what can we do to as an organization and as individuals to, um, you know, uh, move the football forward, you know, a couple of inches? I mean, that to me is you know where we're at. What are things that this organization can do based on these statistics? It's clear to me, Paul, as you've said, we we we're our members are not, uh, you know, are not representative of the blind population. And what do so, we do about that? Well, I, this so, does not surprise me at all. Uh, you take all the pe members of ACB and all the members of NFB and all the members of BVA and all the members of MOUSA, blindness entities, put them all together, and they're less than 10% of the total population that statistically exists so what differentiates those who choose to participate and those who don't choose to participate so are they but, disconnected to the blindness community they are the only blind person they know yeah i i, I don't think I don't think there's there's anything that helps us with the answer to that, <clears throat> but that's one of the reasons why um, I am urging um, people, anybody who's listening to this program, to say to your state, get this data because you can you can get this data broken down to the county level, you can get it broken down in in a whole range of ways so that so that you you can begin to get I think a much clearer picture. Let me just speak to the, the the educational stuff in some of the statistics that that I've got here. Sixty one percent of working age people with vision impairment, um, compared to thirty eight point eight people <clears throat> without vision impairment, report having a high school degree or less. People with vision impairments are almost three times as likely as people without vision impairment to have less 
than a high school degree. Moreover, people without vision impairment are about three times as likely to have a college degree, 29.7 versus 11.4%. Education often predicts income. 42% of people with vision impairment compared to 15.2% of people without vision impairment report annual household income of less than $20,000. So, again, almost three times as many people have incomes of less than $20,000. You know, it's, it's, it, I mean, this is not, this is not the picture of blind people um, that, that I had before I looked at this survey. I don't know about you guys. It's yeah. not for me either. Um, I, am I misreading these numbers? Because what actually caught me off guard was if you look at the 20,000 to 50,000 uh, range for annual income, it shows uh, I'm reading 35.9% of blind individuals versus the 28.9% of no visual impairment. Um, and, and that note, those numbers kind of surprised me when you compare that to the under 20,000, the, the, substantial difference and then you look at that middle point and then all the other ones uh all the other breakdowns it's a lot different between the two categories yeah that that one surprised me but i guess i i I guess that there must be this huge cluster of blind people who work who work for between 20 and fifty thousand. i mean that's that's the only thing that i can think of because i was struck by that a little bit as (laughs) as well michael um um, but but it's uh, but but I mean clearly if you if you look at some of the statistics that are coming out of this report, um, somebody has a lot of work to do, uh, and 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 I guess we can stop spouting statistics and talk a little bit about what they mean and 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 what perhaps we as an organization and perhaps um, and and perhaps VR ought to be doing about this. Thoughts from anyone? I've got one other question. Does this survey speak to how many people are reliant on SSI? It does not. Versus whatever? It does not. So when they say income, that income could be SSI? It it, it almost certainly is. But no. And they, they recognize that that's one of the one of the questions that's out there, um, you know, is, is, and, and there's also, um, Brian to to talk about another of the, of, of the recognized weaknesses of the survey is they, they clearly say that they don't, they don't have a good way of, of measuring the difference between part-time and full-time employment either. Um, and and so we don't know if if uh, if a person is is working part time um, at at a particular level in order to protect the benefits they have under SSI. Right, that's one of the things people are always talking about in terms of entry level employment. You know, what kind of uh, disincentive is there? to go looking for work you know who gets health care along with that paycheck 
uh, and who doesn't. Yep. I'm, I'm also, um, I also wonder whether there's any statistics that deal with whether these people are the sole breadwinner, so to speak, in their household or Well, they're, they're asked about household income, not their income. Very good. Household income under twenty thousand uh, dollars. You would be living in a trash can in Massachusetts. You couldn't afford housing well, at all, at at any level, <clears throat> at any level. Yeah, one of the things you said, Paul, earlier is that the the, the data is available at the county level. Um, it, my, it is. It is for each state. It, yeah, it my, my, my guess is staff. there's going to be huge disparities. Uh, county to county based on how affluent, you know, what the relative affluent level affluence level is of a county. Yes. And I, I think the data is going to be very heavily skewed in that direction as well as uh, minorities. They do mention race in there as one of the influencing factors. Sure. Um, so um, it would be very interesting to see you know, compare the high end versus the low end, you know, the very affluent counties versus those that are, are, are very uh, low in affluence. And I bet you there's huge disparity between those two groups, right? Yeah. As, as, as Melanie said, um, before the, before the program started, and I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, uh, the maps are hard for low for parcels to, right. to look at because right. the colors um, are as yeah, close as they it. are in the in the in the grayscale, so there's not as much contrast to make stuff clear. Exactly. Um, and and for those of us who are totally blind, the maps don't really get it. So I don't know enough about and and truthfully um, have have had uh, have spent a lot of the time looking at the national data rather than spending a lot of time on Florida. Um, the the stats are interesting in Florida, um, similar but 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 not quite the same. In 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 some respects, perhaps a little worse than the national average. Um, By the way, uh, Rick, because we're both in Massachusetts, I know for a fact that uh, the Mass Commission for the Blind and the Braille and Talking Book Library uh, funded getting the Massachusetts data. Um, here for us to take a look at. Well, I think that's very cool, and and I hope other states will do it as well. Um, I I think it's very important that they do. Um, so let me let me ask the folks who are a part of our studio crowd, um, what what do you think this this data suggests that um, that either ACB or or uh, VR ought to be doing, and then that will give people uh, in the audience uh, an opportunity to raise their hands to see if they have comments or questions on the survey. I have one practical thing, and unfortunately I don't have the legislation in front of me, but there is a bill in Congress that is, uh, that is supported by both Republicans and Democrats to overhaul the SSI requirements. So that cliff that we talked about, the SSI cliff is, is, is precarious as it is now. Um, and I think at the very least, the uh, I would love to see ACB support that bill uh, and see what it can do. I mean, you know, talk about 
uh, you know, su uh, supporting a, a larger slice of the of the blindness community, the visually impaired community. This strikes me as a bill that, um, if I understand it correctly, um, you know, is, is what might do some good over time. You know, we, we all know that people, some people can't or won't work because of their SSI because they're afraid of losing those benefits. And as I understand the bill, uh, it will um, uh, make it you know, less precarious if you get a job, you won't lose those benefits so easily. So I think we should uh, think about supporting that bill. And I'm, I'm sorry to say I don't have the number in front of me. I apologize for that, but somebody should have that information somewhere. One I know I things to, to, to the leadership list uh, a few days ago. Yeah. One of the things that's happening um, in a lot of states, and I think it's a good thing, is that agencies for the blind or vocational rehabilitation agencies are actually hiring benefits counselors um, to help folks look at SSI and SSDI to see what the impact of job taking is likely to be. And I think that's a step in the right direction because at least it recognizes that SSI and SSDI are, are barriers rather than benefits. Mm -hmm. Other comments from the studio group, or shall we open it up? I think to go back to your question about what ACB and or uh, VR slash commissions for the blind can do is uh, looking at these high school graduate numbers and those who don't graduate. I, I think focusing on younger demographics of individuals to yeah. see how is it that we as an organization or voc rehab or yeah. commissions can support those individuals could be helpful i know oregon has a program called summer work experience program um in retrospect i wish i would have participated and maybe there's something where acb could help encourage younger individuals right. to get involved in those programs that are offered by the states to help with with career options and and employment well and the other thing is that is that there isn't any excuse for vr in every state not participating because they're required to spend 15% of their dollars on transition anyway. Um, but I guess the one other, the one other comment that, that I would make uh, about what, what you were talking about, Michael, is that, uh, is that um, in, in terms of dealing with, um, with VR, um, there is not at the moment i don't think uh in in enough recognition that um consumer organizations and vr can collaborate and i think one of the things we ought to do is as an organization reach out to vr and try to build more cooperation uh miss marianne do we have any hands we most certainly do we have karen 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 campbell Okay, thank you very much. My question is two parts. A, how can a state how can a state get the data? And B, how much does it cost to get the data? Well, I don't know what I I, I don't want to speak for uh, for anybody about the cost. I know how much Florida paid for it, <clears throat> but I probably shouldn't say so. What I would recommend that people do, Karen, is get hold of Lee Nasahi, who is the executive director of the Vision Serve Alliance. Okay. And 
you can find the Vision Serve Alliance website easily, um, and um, and they should be able to to tell you how your state can get it and 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 how much they're expecting. Okay, great. Thank you. And and did you have a second question, Karen? No, that was that was the two part. How to get it? Where and how much? Got it. Got it. Got it. That was so. So let me share something with you um, that that came out of the survey that we haven't talked about. One of the other surprising things, um, Karen, was there is a very high incidence of people who indicate that along with their vision impairment, they have hearing loss. Much higher than we would have expected. I find that um, interesting, especially because we don't we don't have real hard numbers on that. So that's real interesting. Well, there's there's a lot of hard numbers in this survey. Yes, um, I don't know. Th- I don't be. know that I can. I don't know that I can find them for you quickly. Um, but I'll look for them. If I find them before the end of the program, I'll 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 share with the group. Yep. Okay. Who's next, Miss Marianne? Um, we have Anisio. Mr. Oh, yeah, Correa. Okay. Anisio so, is back. I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, I, I have to say that I have not seen the report, so I, I'm just going by what I, I heard you guys talk about. But I'm I'm really curious about this, uh, the, the large percentage of, of people who are blind and visually impaired, how much grade it is that have not completed high school. Um, and then, and obviously with the, the income being much, uh, the, the greater percentage of blind people of that group that is also, um, under $20,000, uh, but then, so if I heard it correctly, Michael saying that of those people that make between 20 and uh, is it 20 or 30 or and 50 20 and 50,000 is what right is more blind people yeah. do right so i'm curious if that's the case if that's related to education it it where, stood out a little bit to me and i'm trying to but, decide if it's a if it's a misprint uh anisio but it and and i haven't looked at the figures to see if they add up to 100 mm-hmm. percent. but because i but michael's I remember, right i remember when i was working you know and and working in woke rehab and so from the private sector point of view, uh, the hardest consumer to 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 help get employed, especially someone who had lost vision during adulthood, is that person that without a high school diploma, right? right. So, and I can't <clears throat> tell you how many times, and this used to happen a lot more when I well, started than, than it, right. it, it is now, where people were encouraged to go back to college. Now, VR is not very supportive of that, but it used to be. People used to get skills and sometimes become take professional positions that they didn't before, because it is so hard to, to you know, you can't easily get a job at McDonald's or, a, or yeah. um, in, in a department store or whatever it may be. So I'm wondering if, that, if, if all those things are related. Chris Bell would tell you that another factor um, is that there are a bunch more uh, multiply disabled, visually impaired folks, particularly who are younger, um, be- because of the number of premature babies we save. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and and those those would account perhaps for some of the numbers who didn't complete high school. Um, for Karen. Um, 
Karen, here here are some statistics. <clears throat> Hearing impairment, um, blind and visually impaired across the board, 16.2% versus um uh, versus 3.4 percent diabetes 19.5 percent versus 7.2 depression 41.3 versus 19.3 kidney disease 7.1 versus 1.9 and stroke 9.1 versus 1.8 so comorbidities across the board are immensely more prevalent among people who are blind Ms. Paul, just one, just Sorry, one um, an issue. Go ahead. Just one last thing. I may have misread this, but I read somewhere that each state report is $250. Seems a lot cheaper than you, than I thought it would be, but that's what I read. Um <clears throat> I don't think that's right. Okay. Maybe maybe I, <laughs> I, I read that wrong. Because the, the ones on the the aging the aging and vision loss national coalition, they were ten thousand dollars each. Yeah. <clears throat> I think I'm, I'm sure I think your that number is, is um, at least a zero off. I, I, I think <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think um I th I think your your number for aging folks is is closer to one I'd heard. Yeah. All right, thank you uh, so much. You're welcome, Miss Marianne. We have area code 619 ending in 8. Uh, I think it's Peter, Heidi. Peter? I believe that's who that is. Area well, code 619. Oh, no, sorry, that's not, sorry. Six, I apologize. Six, if you're asking for 619, this yep, is that's you. Yep. I want to make my comments brief. I am so impressed by the work that has been done. Um, I'm going to read going to be reflecting on this. I just want to say that um, two things, two points. One is that I think the finances are um, a big part of it. If, if someone is on SSI, it's almost like their initiative is a little bit frozen. You know, it can be. It doesn't have to be. Um, some And that's something that's being addressed by the ABLE accounts, by maybe some of the maybe a larger amount of uh, resources you're entitled to if um, usually SSI is tied to health things and we talked about the comorbidities okay so I want to just say how impressed I am because if you get a clear snapshot of things it helps you so much one thing that I think is a little tangential but um, is relating to the survey what I have seen in my fairly affluent you know, metropolitan area of San Diego, is that um, a lot of people um, will go through, uh, you know, rehab services or like San Diego Center for the Blind, and they're very successful, but they don't see the need for joining these advocacy organizations. And I think right. that the presence of people of achievement, um, I know one man here who's a real estate agent, and his friends ask him, do you not know any other blind people? And one of the things that's, that they can offer or that they, you know, if it can somehow they can be recruited is that they're just offering role models for other people. There are many, yep. many successful blind people that we never, you know, that we never come in contact. And once having come in contact with them, it can really be an impetus for someone else. Yep. And that's all I wanted to say right now. Cool. Um, thank, thank you very, very much, much for your, for your call. call. Sure. Yep. <clears throat> cool. Ms. Marianne? We have Lori Scharf. 
Miss Lori. Miss Lori, I owed you a call and I didn't call you back. And I apologize for that. Um, was the survey worth it? Okay. Can you guys hear me? Now we can, we can yes. Okay. Um, okay. So the first thing I was going to say was that in 2019, which was when this data was collected, correct? Yes. The substantial gainful activity level for blind people was 2040. So I think that could be some of your people earning 20,000 to 50,000. Good point. Or household Thank income you. of 20,000 yep. to 50,000. It's that, now that's a really good point. Yeah, it is a good point. It's now over 2200. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, in 2024. The mm -hmm. other thing is um, what I would recommend ACB work on is try to partner with the university program or something along those lines to gather data both uh, through ACB, you know, outreach at national conventions and, you know, through just people in general to the to people who are blind or low vision and doing additional surveys that might be more current. And another option would be to gather data directly from the Social Security Administration. And you can do that by requesting data. Gallaudet University did this. They requested data specifically on people who are deaf because that was their target population. Um, historically, according to Social Security, people who are blind, when they do go to work and go off benefits, are the high are a higher level earner compared to other disabilities. I believe um, that. So it it is interesting. The other thing is is I would um, think Paul, you may want to look at the data out of Mississippi State and do a comparison between uh, this this data and that data. Yep, you had suggested that. Um, I I haven't I have not looked at the data, and and I will try to get it, and 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 we'll we'll do a dueling data show. You in, want to represent nut, Mississippi State? Oh no, no, they can do that on their own. Um, <laughs> but in a nutshell, what they say is forty three percent of people are working, ten percent are um, are unemployed, and the remainder are not actively looking for work. Yeah, that that, that wouldn't disagree with these stats at all. No, 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 nope. exactly, nope. and that that's why I found it to be very interesting. And they, I believe. For some reason, I believe they did use some data gathered from Social Security as well as the American Community Survey and other things. Thank yeah, you. Well, the American Community Survey and 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 of course the 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 data from the CDC are the are the two major components of this right. data. Thanks, Lori. You're welcome, Miss Marianne. Christelle. Yeah. Hi. Um, so there are, I think, four states. Um, that have, uh, through uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, very high incidence of uh, health care insurance. Um, the state with the highest level of insured folks is Massachusetts. And Yay! Remember, that's right. I seem to remember that only 4.7% of residents of Massachusetts don't have health insurance, which is wow. pretty remarkable. Um, it is. I don't know how I don't know how current that 
data is because the survey you guys are talking about is 2019 and i, I don't know how yes. to you know correlate the dates but i think it would be interesting to see in, in those states that have a very good penetration of health insurance how that affects the uh, comorbidity uh, data um and, and whether it makes a difference i'm i'm hoping it does but i don't know whether it will well i mean there's certainly there's certainly some um some indication of the relevance of what you're seeing in that that florida that probably is um is among the the lowest level of affordable care act in involvees and also has the has the highest number of medicaid eligible individuals not covered because of state government policy um uh, actually has a higher level of comorbidity than operates at the national level well i would think so i mean that should be the case i mean i don't mean yep. that i want it to be the case i just mean you know if you don't have insurance and you're not getting the health care you need whether or not it's uh mental health or, or diabetes or whatever um so I, anyway i think that would be an interesting thing to see whether there's a, yep. there's a I, I think it's a good question do, do you think, think this survey suggests some work for acb chris you know what i'm i'm sitting on the board of acb as i do um i, I think we have to be realistic about what acb can can accomplish um mm -hmm. and I, I don't you know we i the the idea of making linkages with universities or or appropriate state agencies makes a lot of sense but on our own, I think our ability to uh, to change anything substantial in this kind of data is is really nil. I don't think we have the money, and I don't think we have the staff, and I don't think we have enough volunteers uh, that would do it. Cool. So, thank you, Chris. Thanks. Yep. Yep. Miss Marianne, you're clear of hands. Paul. Yes. I wanted to um, brag a little bit about my wife, Carrie, and the work she's doing at a community college because I think this is another area that we need to look at. She's working on a grant, essentially um, helping people with disabilities, you know, um, get through college and find work. And um, connect with that, the, the latest research, well, trend in, 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 in uh, uh, the business press that talks about how folks, some employers are beginning to waive requirements of college degrees in, 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 in place of, skills you can demonstrate yep. a certain skill set you don't need and the college experience degree. yep yeah, ex yep. right exactly and um carrie uh, carrie's program uh that she's helping running is a really interesting program and i say that because i think there uh models like hers might put a dent a small dent into this situation you know because they help and among other things they um they they help people get their geds um once in a while so you know there yeah. are um, I think community colleges is, is another link that we need to think about um, as we sort of wrestle with oh, this. Problem. It's, it's, yeah. It feels so mammoth, you know, um, yeah. but we, we got to start somewhere. I'm going to brag so, on my state. Here in Massachusetts, our governor introduced her budget for this coming fiscal year, and it includes free community college for all residents. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And by the way, so, uh, Carrie's uh, just uh, forgive me, Paul. Carrie's going to be running a session uh, this uh, for vir virtual convention about the work she's doing and um, uh, and you know what what she's discovering and what she's learning. And right. I hope and, people will listen to that. I think it'll be really interesting. 
Excellent. And, and I'm going to brag on my state, uh, at least as it as it's operating so far. Um, uh, FCB was, uh, along with others, obviously, um, were, were able to persuade a permanent increase of a half a million dollars in money to be spent on services to older blind folks in the state. So I'm very proud of that. We've, we've, awesome. we've one year got $300,000 extra, but it didn't carry over to the next year. Now it appears as though we've gotten a permanent uh, allocation of an additional half million dollars, plus a, a bunch of other money that, that can be allocated to our, our, our local community programs. So I'm excited about both of those parts of our budget. <laughs> Since we're bragging. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, employment committee. Any any final comments that you guys would like to make before we pull towards the end of our evening together? I'm a comment to Chris um, and the board as as a whole. I, I appreciate the fact that you guys are stressed with with staff and you know volunteer challenges, and I I, I appreciate that. I do hope. Um, that you take employment a little more seriously than you are now. Um, uh, it is a big issue. Uh, I think uh, that um, ACB could do, be doing a little more. I, I'm not asking you to change the universe, but perhaps um, to, for example, to connect with employers that you work with um, already in, in, in other uh, areas and encourage them to think about employment of blind folks. Um, I just think that it's too too um, too important issue to sort of put on the back burner, uh, and I hope that um, the board will take that uh, a little more seriously than they appear to be doing now. Other comments from employment committee members? Other members from other comments from the studio group? Any any thoughts from anybody? I think. You yes, know, Brian's sir. going to say something. Yes, sir. <laughs> I have to say that um, one, uh, I I was kind of questioning the whole business of uh, putting so much emphasis on transition when such a big portion of yeah. our uh, rehab system is underfunded to get the mm -hmm. job done for, for everybody. Uh, but these numbers suggest that uh, maybe somebody knew something more than I did on the subject. Mm -hmm. I'm not at all sure that uh, barring some kind of commitment on a local basis, a local basis, things are going to change much in terms of, of VR activities. We're very lucky. We can, the previous commissioner, have a new one who knows his stuff, happens to be a blind person, which doesn't hurt. Uh, but I do think, I really do think that uh, some connection between consumers and our state agencies, the, the, if there's going to be some solution, it's going to be through that connection. Yep. So I'd like to thank the employment Sorry. committee for all their work. Go ahead, Ms. Marianne. No, no, no. I just wanted to say that I agree with Peter. I, I really do. I, I think that we have so many connections in terms of 
sponsors and people who donate and the ACB is well connected. And I think that um, I, I just wanted to be on the record of saying I, I really agree with what Peter said about what we could be doing. So I want to thank the Employment Committee for being here this evening, for helping us look at this data, as well as providing information on a survey that they've done. I'd like to thank Lee Nassahi and Robert Doyle um, for their involvement in making this data available. And I'd like to invite everyone uh, to come back to Tuesday Topics next week when we'll have a chance to hear about uh, the Durward McDaniel Group and uh, and all of the interesting work that's being done to develop leadership within ACB, which we desperately need. So on behalf of the large crowd that's with us this evening, it gives me great pleasure to say to everyone, good night.